<clears throat> I want to begin this morning by giving some startling statistics uh, that I think can form a, a great background to what we're going to be looking at. And I think you'll find the first set of statistics to be very encouraging. The statistician David Barrett, uh, whom D. James Kennedy calls, uh, quote, the greatest church statistician alive. Uh, I wouldn't know, but uh, that's what he says. Uh, he's a very well-respected statistician, though. Uh, he says that if the present trends continue, the number of Christians actively involved in evangelism could well be one billion within two years. Uh, it has been growing at a rate that uh, if it continues, that's what he feels it would be. For sure, the number of Christians in non-Western countries has been growing at an absolutely astronomical rate. And I want to give you some of Barrett's uh, figures. In the year 1430, the ratio of Christians to non-Christians was estimated to be 1 to 99. In other words, for every 99 unbelievers, there was one uh, professing Christian. Now that in itself is quite phenomenal when you consider that things started out after the time of Christ with 120 people in the upper room. Remember in Isaiah it says of Christ's kingdom that of the increase of his government and of peace there would be no end. And that has certainly been true down through the centuries. But in 1430 a ratio of 1 to 99. 1790 that had increased a ratio of 1 to 49. In 1940, it was 1 to 32, and this is where the curve uh, really begins to take off in an uphill direction. In 1960, it was 1 to 24. In 1970, 1 to 19. In 1980, it was 1 to 16. In 1983, just three years later, it was 1 to 13 ratio. I don't know if you've studied statistics, but if you graph that out, uh, you'll see a gradual growth, and then it goes faster and faster. And during the 1900s, it's just going straight up. Well, not straight up, but it looks like it. I mean, it's really, really climbing. From 1983 to 1986, it went from a ratio of 1 to 13 to 1 to 11. In 1989, it went to 1 to 10. In 1993, it went to 1 to 9. So in other words, out of... Out of nine, nine unbelievers, for every nine unbelievers, there's one professing Christian in the world. Now, not all of them are regenerate. Not all of them are evangelicals. But when you consider that the Roman Catholic Church has not really been growing that much and liberal churches have actually been declining, the, the statistics are absolutely phenomenal in terms of the growth of the evangelical church. Since 1993, uh, the growth rate... Uh, the evangelical church has been so phenomenally fast, the U.S. Um, Center for World Missions says is hopeless to get books to the printing presses before the, the figures are out of date. That is how fast things are growing. Now, here's the scary thing to me. A lot of that growth has completely bypassed America. Almost all of the growth seems to be occurring in third world or non-Western countries. For example, in 1970, just 27 years ago, two-thirds of the world's Christians lived in the West, mostly in America and Europe, but two-thirds of the world's Christians lived in the West, one-third in the non-West. Ten years later, in 1980, it changed to 50-50 between the West and the non-West, Another 10 years, by 1990, 
of world Christians live in the non-West, only 25% in the West. You know, it's hard to adequately communicate the enormity of the growth of the Christian church uh, in the third world. Within nine years, just another figure here, within nine years from 1980 to 1989, the number of Asian Christians had grown from 16 million, that's one-six, to 80 million, eight-zero million. It's absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Christ has been building his church and the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against it, amen? But because of that growth, Satan has been fighting back with fury. And that's where the second set of statistics uh, come in, that there has been unbelievable persecution in the last few years. Let me give you two statements that came across my desk this past week uh, from organizations. The first one gives the fig- you know, the, the idea that we've just been talking about. This Christian leader said, I've made 11 trips around the world in the last 15 months, and I've witnessed God's hand at work. Nothing in the history of world evangelism compares with what is happening today, unquote. So that's, that's the good side, the encouraging news. Here is the negative. This came from a, a newsletter that was representing actually a number of Christian organizations looking at the persecution of Christians that have been happening around the world. And many other organizations have documented, said the same thing, but they said, quote, more Christians have been martyred for their faith in this century alone than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Christians more so than followers of any other faith are suffering brutal persecution. Uh, One statistic that I read was that 17 Christians on the average are martyred, are, are put to death for their faith every hour, day and night, all of the time, 17 an hour. That means that for every three and a half minutes that I have been talking in this comfortable church here, there has been a person who has died by being strangled or tortured to death or his throat slit or in some way beaten to death, has been martyred for his faith. Uh, what I, I thought that I would do is just set my my um, a stopwatch here to go off three and a half minute intervals, if I can remember to keep turning it on here, not so that you can find out how long I'm preaching, but so that you can get a little bit of a glimpse of the enormity of the problem of the persecution of the church in our day. The attacks on Christians in the Sudan has been brutal. Uh, Christian Solidarity and uh, Frontline Fellowship, many other organizations have documented this. Some have had eyewitness accounts of crucifixions of Christians. One million Christians have, have, have been killed. Uh, three and a half million Christians have been forced to flee. Countless numbers of Christian children have been abducted, have been forced into slavery or concubinage with others. In Egypt, Christian businesses are burned or looted. In Iran... Four prominent uh, evangelical pastors have been assassinated. In Afghanistan, Christians losing their lives. Recently, one uh, person who had converted to Christianity was slowly over a period of time tortured to death as an example of what could happen to others if they became Christians. In Saudi Arabia, there are arrests of uh, hundreds of Christians that are taking place. Officially, they say there are no Christians in the nation. No Bibles allowed, no Christians allowed in the nation. Uh, Just recently... um, uh, you've probably read about the two Filipinos who were sentenced to 100 lashes each and deported from the country for owning a Bible. That was all they had on them, that they found a Bible in their possession. Uh, two others recently were beheaded. That's foreigners. 
the persecution has been really heating up against uh, people within Saudi Arabia. They give a um, $3,000 bounty to anybody who will report a home church or a Bible study going on in a home. And so they've really been trying to wipe out and suppress Christianity there. In Somalia, believers are forbidden from owning property. Mobs have wiped out whole villages of Christians in Pakistan. In Vietnam, Christians have been imprisoned, threatened, their homes, their property confiscated. In North Korea, there have been many, many people who have been put to death for their Christian faith. Um, in China, uh, that many people say, well, there's freedom of religion. Well, that's uh, true in the uh, three self-patriotic movement church, which is government controlled, and they're not allowed to preach on certain things. But on the underground church that refuses to be controlled, people have been routinely beaten, imprisoned, raped, tortured, killed. Uh, we have photographs. We have names of uh, many individuals who have suffered for their faith in China. In Turkey, a national pastor has been imprisoned eight times, each time being whipped, harshly interrogated. And there are many others in Turkey who has faced similar persecution. Algeria, Nigeria, many other countries could be mentioned. Now, can you see why that would be? You know, with the two sets of statistics side by side, any time the church of Jesus Christ has been aggressive in its evangelism, has been reaching out, been making inroads into Satan's territory, uh, there has been a backlash from Satan. Any time the church of Jesus Christ has been on fire for the Lord, there has been uh, severe persecution. The church is growing like it has never grown before, but it's also being persecuted like it has never been persecuted before. Let me give you one last set of statistics, and that is that there are more Christians praying today that since I started timing that, another Christian, on the average, another Christian has in some way been martyred in that short period of time. Uh, the Lord have mercy upon the church of Jesus Christ when we do not pray for those who are under attack in other nations. But as I was saying, more Christians are praying today than ever before. Since 1989, millions of Christians from 180 countries have in a networked way committed, have signed on the line that they will be committed to praying on a daily basis for the outreach of the gospel. There is a global prayer movement that is happening, and each one of us have the privilege and the ability to be a part of that global prayer movement in asking for God's kingdom power to come down upon the earth. Now, I've put into your uh, boxes, along with the discussion questions, uh, some uh, facts and figures and statistics and different ways in which we can help. Uh, we can help with, with money and clothing and food and governmental intervention and writing letters. But I want to emphasize this morning that there is nothing that can be more powerful or more important than praying for the persecuted church. We must pray for them. And when the whole church is stirred up to pray as we ought to be praying, I believe there will be even a greater busting forth of evangelism and, and God can hedge his people around, spare them from the lion's den if it is his will. Now, today I want to not only challenge you to pray for the suffering church, but show you the principles that Daniel himself used. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Daniel identified with God's people. And if we do not begin to identify with God's people and their suffering, then we are going to lack the kind of passion 
uh, in our prayers that Daniel's had. We have a tendency when people are from other nations just to forget about them, to put them out of our minds. And what I want to call us to do is not to allow that. Why was there sackcloth and ashes and fasting that Daniel engaged in in verse 3? He was not suffering. He had a cushy job. He was in favor uh, with the current king. But Daniel was so troubled over what was happening to his people, to God's people, that he wanted in some way to physically identify with them. He was far removed from Jerusalem, and yet he was troubled over the state of affairs of God's temple. I want you to notice in this prayer the words us and we and our that keep coming up over and over again. Now, Daniel was not personally suffering, but it says in verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Uh, Verse 14 says, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. Uh, Verse 18 talks about our desolations. Why does he include himself in this way? If the Spirit of God has never caused you to experience pains on behalf of those who are suffering, this probably just seems strange, just seems foreign to you. Now, I know those of you who truly have the gift of mercy know exactly what I'm talking about because you have experienced pain when you have seen other people suffer around you. You know exactly what I'm talking about, but the Scripture indicates, and that again is one more person who has been executed in some way for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a reminder, a sober reminder. We have freedoms that we must not take for granted, but we need to pray for others. And this is going to take me a while to figure out even where I was at in my sermon. Um, Suffering for the Lord. Oh, yes, Brother Andrew Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bibles for years and years on behalf of the suffering church, he said this back in 1996. We have not understood what the Bible teaches about the body of Christ. If one member suffers, the whole body suffers. It's not just we agree with their suffering. We suffer with them. The whole body suffers. Do you suffer with the believers in Tibet? If not, why not? I believe it is part of being a healthy Christian to be able to suffer when other people suffer. Uh, uh, Nehemiah suffered, Daniel suffered, Moses so identified with the people of God that when he knew that they were going to be destroyed, he cries out to God and he says that he asked God to blot his name out of the book of life so that they might be saved. Now, I have to be honest with you, I have not been brought by the Spirit of God to that degree of identification with God's people where there is that kind of a, of a suffering on their behalf. Paul had that. In Romans chapter 9, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Three times he's indicating, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not lying. I want to convince you what I'm saying, even though you find utterly unbelievable, this is true. What is it that he says is hard to believe? He says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. He's saying, I wish there are times I wish I could be I could go to hell so that these people would not have to go to hell. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. It is a spirit given thing. 
And you might say, no way, I don't want that. I'd go crazy if I began to suffer every time somebody else was suffering. And it's true, if it was not a spirit-given suffering, you might go crazy. But that does not happen to those who are wrought by the Spirit of God in this way. Uh, the Spirit of God, when He gives us that burden which will not lift, that drives us to prayer and causes us to cry out to the God, He lifts that as well. When the answer has come, he lifts that prayer burden. He enters us into a joy of the Holy Spirit. The point, though, is that if this is something that we come and we expose ourselves continually to suffering apart from the Spirit, yes, it may drive us crazy. But if the Spirit gives it, you can suffer in that way. You can suffer on their behalf because he equips you to suffer uh, by identifying with them. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 13. Just give you another example of where we are called to suffer uh, with those and identify with those who are suffering. Hebrews 13 and uh, verse 3. He says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them and those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And there is the alarm again going. so many deaths happening. I don't want you to be overwhelmed and burdened with the fact that there are uh, more millions of people suffering than you can deal with. But I want it to stir you up to realize there are people dying continually and I can do something about it. I can't do everything, but I can do something. But anyway, he says here, as if chained with them. Now, if you were chained with those prisoners, you would be suffering with them. But he says, I want you to remember them as if you were chained with them. Why? Because we have been united to the body of Christ and we have communion with that whole body. When part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. But secondly, identify not just with their suffering, but with the church's sins. Over and over again in this chapter, Daniel confesses other people's sins as if he were guilty of them. How can a righteous man like Daniel say in verse 5, we have sinned? When you use the we, you're including yourself. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, etc., etc. And you go down through the passage and you'll see he confesses sin after sin that other people have committed. Daniel didn't commit all of those sins. He hadn't personally rejected the prophets that God had given. But you see, he was guilty covenantally because he was part of the bride of Christ that had rejected those prophets. Look at verse 20 where he summarizes what he is doing. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. See, he not only confessed his own personal sins, but he confessed the sins of the bride of Christ as a whole. You see that? Many Christians rebel against the idea that they should confess the sins, for example, of racism that the church has engaged in over time because they say, I'm not a racist. Why should I feel guilty about the sins of the church? that maybe other people have engaged in. Well, you don't have to use the word I. It's not a personal guilt that you have. We're talking about a covenantal guilt. We're part of the bride. 
And if the bride has sinned, we need to confess the sins of the bride. And let me tell you, if you are so individualistic, along with the individualistic culture of America, that you cannot identify with the sins of the bride of Christ, you are not going to be able to suffer with the bride of Christ. They go hand in hand. The third way in which Daniel identified with God's people showed that this was a heartfelt concern as well. Daniel identified with the shame of his people. Take a look at verses 7 through 8. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. Okay, This is not just an intellectual shame where he says, yeah, this is a shameful thing. No, he feels it in his face. He says, but to us, shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. I don't know if it bothers you to the degree that it bothers me to hear that watch going off and realizing Time after time, even during this sermon, there are people who are being martyred for their faith. I hope your hearts are stirred up to realize we've got to do something. We've got to stand up on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not just a legal identification with them. It's not just identifying with them intellectually, but it's emotionally identifying with them as well. Now, it's true. You cannot turn your emotions on and off like a switch. But if you would I begin to identify with the sufferings of the church and you begin to identify with their sins and verbally and physically you get involved in the lives of those who are suffering, it will affect you emotionally. And God calls us to be involved in that. Do you sense shame? at the sins of the bride of Jesus Christ in America. Does it grieve you? You know, David said that rivers of tears flowed down his cheeks when he considered the sins of his nation. It grieved him. It troubled him. Now, if we're troubled in our own strength, we will, we will begin to go crazy over it. But when it is a spirit-given thing, it ushers into a resolved uh, character because he, ha- he can do something about it. He can resolve the situation. Well, let's go on to the second point. What's the danger when we identify so strongly with God's people? The danger is that we can become man-centered in our prayers and we can begin to question God. Why God has allowed this suffering? Uh, Whether God is just in doing this, whether God even cares about his people. Now, again, that will not happen if it's a a spirit-given urge Uh, to identify with his people. But if you involve yourself in the suffering plight of other people over and over again, apart from God's spirit, it's bound to do one of three things to you. Either you're going to become inured to that suffering, hardened to that suffering, or secondly, you're going to go crazy. Or thirdly, uh, it's going to be uh, causing you to question God. Question whether God is right in what he, what he had done. I have known Christians who have denied that God is sovereign because they can't bear the idea of saying that God has allowed such suffering. I knew one person who had abandoned God for quite a period of time because God had allowed suffering in his life. And I don't want you to respond in that way. I want you to respond as Job did. Job lost everything. He lost his house. He lost his cattle, his sheep, his servants, his money. Uh, everything was robbed from him. He lost his children. 
And yet it says in Job, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. He's not denying his pain. He's not running away from it. He cries out before the Lord. But the next words say, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, there are many people who allow such calamities, such suffering that other people have gone through to drive them away from the Lord and to begin to hate the Lord and become bitter against the Lord. Job did not do that. Instead, he allowed those things to drive him closer to the Lord. And if you view suffering in a man-centered way, it will cause you to question God. But if you view the suffering of people like the one who has just died, if you view it in a God-centered way, God's characteristics, God's attributes will begin to be a solution to the problem. Let me just give you some examples from this text here. Faithfulness. It would have been very easy for Daniel to begin to question whether or not God really was faithful to his people. And you see him coming up over and over again in his prayer, he appeals to the only thing in life that was infallible, and that is the word of God. He knew everything else can be mistaken, but God's word can never be mistaken. And since it describes God as a faithful God, he's going to start from God, what he knows is to true. And he causes that to answer the question of suffering. In verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God, made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Uh, Another example, rather than allowing the suffering of others uh, to make him think things are not under God's control, Daniel asserts in this prayer that God is sovereign, he is in control, and really that is the only hope for those who are suffering. That is the only basis for a person even praying to God. And so his focus on God kept him from stumbling over the suffering. Rather than accusing God of uh, doing wrong, he says in verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. Rather than accusing God of being a cruel, in verse 9 he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. For every defect that the church has, God's perfections are the answer. For every weakness we have, God's power is the answer. And in your bulletins, I'm not going to take the time to go through there, but I outline how Daniel appeals to God's mercy, his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his sovereignty, his power as a reason why he's even praying to God, as a reason why God is the source and the answer to these these problems. He says that God even has the right to be angry. God has the right to make that suffering. If we ever question that and we begin to be man-centered in the way we approach it, we lose all basis for our prayers because as we saw last week, the only way we can have a basis for our prayers is if we ground them in the promises of God, the character of God, His very nature. We lose our power for prayer if we lose point two. So the first thing I'm calling you to do for the suffering around the world is to identify with them. Secondly, agree with God. Thirdly, pray. And it's a simple matter of obedience. And I believe it is a minimal uh, issue of obedience. It's no wonder to me that the church 
uh, in the third world is growing like wildfire while it is stagnating here in America because we have so little commitment in America, even to pray, so little commitment in America. The July 15, 1996 issue of Christianity Today said, quote, we in the Christian church don't come close to matching the level of commitment, determination, and strength of many Muslim groups. Until we do, Islam will continue to be the world's fastest growing religion, not because of its strength, but because of our weakness. And statistics in the last year and a half have showed that not a whole lot has changed uh, since that time. Prayer for the suffering is an indication of our commitment to the bride of Christ, and I urge you to pray. Pray for the Lord's sake. Uh, we're not talking about twisting God's arm here. We are giving what God has ordained must take place on behalf of the bride whom he values, whom he loves. He loves to see our prayers on behalf of the persecuted church. He loves it. When we read Psalms like Carrie read earlier, calling for his vengeance on behalf of the church. We are giving to him what the Lord uh, himself desires and loves. And it says later on here in verse 17 uh, that it's for the Lord's sake. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. Verse 19, second clause, do not delay for your own sake. Uh, the, I gave a quote last week from a, a reformed minister in in England, who said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. God loves to answer prayers on behalf of the suffering church. And so we're praying for his sake, for his glory. But lastly, pray for the sake of God's people. As you love God's kingdom, pray. As you love Christ's bride, pray. Paul said, when part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And we need to have concern enough to pray. I think we're living in some of the most exciting times in all of world history, but we're also living in some of the most sobering times. And I think it's that third set of statistics we started with, prayer, that will turn the tide. In Isaiah 62, verse 6, God himself says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, who shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest. And the hymn is capitalized, it's authorizing us to continue to petition God. Give him no rest, it says, till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. I do not believe it is God's will that the church will always suffer. There is coming a time when the church will become a praise in the earth rather than the laughingstock of the earth. There is coming a time when, when, when the, the nations will submit to the Lord, when righteousness will fill the earth as the waters cover the ocean beds. And we need to be praying that God would hasten that time and when he would bring relief to his people, the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.